Welcome back everybody to the Doss and Dee Show and this time we're coming to you from London. On today's very special episode we sat down with the incredibly talented and even better person Yolanda Charles. Yolanda's career in the music industry is something that many of us would dream about. She is the founder and current bassist for jazz fusion soulful R&B band Project PH and Doss and I had the honour to go see the band play one of their first live gigs out of lockdown at London's famous Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. And let me tell you guys, neither of us have ever experienced anything quite like it. Prior to Project PH, Yolanda's CV is certainly impressive. She has played alongside Robbie Williams, Mick Jagger, Paul Weller and Hans Zimmer, just to name a few, as well as countless tours with her own bands and even working in TV. We had such a great time chatting with Yolanda as she reflected on her career. She shared with us how she got into the industry, her first big break and what it was like behind the scenes at the Jonathan Ross Show. We had a laugh as she talked about life on the road and some of the more unpleasant experiences she encountered and the difficulty she sometimes faced being the only female in the group travelling throughout the world. Yolanda took us backstage to one of the biggest performances in musical history, Robbie Williams live at Nepworth. It was truly eye-opening to hear about the experience, what it was like working with Robbie and all the fun and anxiety that came with it. She shared with us her recent achievement of receiving an MBE and things got quite emotional as she told us what it would mean to her parents and family and just how hard they had to work to make a life for themselves here in England. This is one of the best interviews we've sat down to do and you guys are going to have an absolute blast listening to it. So without further ado, here is the amazing Yolanda Charles. Welcome to the Doss and D Show. Two great mates striving to improve in all areas of their lives. The podcast is designed to empower everyday humans just like us who want to add more joy, energy and happiness into their daily lives. Sharing our real life experiences and everyday struggles, relating to them in a personal way. Expect uncensored stories, plenty of laughs and tips and tricks to inspire you on your own journey. Now, let's go balls deep. We're finally doing our first interview of 2022, mate. And mate, we're in London. How exciting is this? Can't believe it, to be honest. On the on the tube, it's weird saying the tube, isn't it? It absolutely uh, the, is. To our Aussie <laughs> listeners, the train or the tube, but the underground. We're just on our way down to where we are, and we were kind of nearly pinching ourselves, weren't we? This is a big, big thing for us. We talked about this ages ago, how cool it would be to, to podcast international, and today we get it, and... The intro would have told the listeners a little bit about the uh, the CV of our wonderful guest, but Yolanda Charles, welcome to the Doss and D Show. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Right, thank you for being here, yeah, we're, we're so, so excited. Actually, we were welcomed by Yolanda at the very famous Ronnie Scott's the other night, Jazz Club in the West End, is that? Soho. Soho, Soho, Soho. and that was a wonderful experience. How did you find it, firstly? Well, we were lining up, I think it was about like 11.30 or closer to 12 o'clock, and I was pretty tired, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, it's going to be a nightclub in there, isn't it? And uh, we, there were some seats. We got to sit down and it was a problem. I was very excited. <laughs> we got a couple of drinks and away we went. But it was an unbelievable experience. So how many times have you played at that club? Well, I, I was lucky enough to get invited to open for a few bands in 2018. Okay. And that was my first kind of version of this particular lineup. And uh, they wanted us to do instrumental, an instrumental lineup. So we created a set list that fit in with that. And then I decided, oh, I think I'll start my band actually properly again. And I've had various personnel changes. So that was like four nights we did in a row. Wow. Then this massive gap where I was touring with other artists. And then 2019, uh, we went in the studio and I was going to, you know, really push things forward. Had a bunch of touring to do with Squeeze and Hans Zimmer. And then after that, in the December, I was like, right, I'm going to get on with this. Yeah. Get on with the band. 2020... Had it all lined up, gigs in the book, studio stuff in the book, and 2020 yeah. hit. And so mm. now we're in 2022. So the, I just had that four, those four gigs before the pandemic and then a big gap. And we're back. And this time they offered us a residency. Wow. Which is every month we'll be playing two shows okay. at minimum every month, which is going to be great for our band to, to get in shape. You it's know? got a real rich history, doesn't it, there? Yeah. Even like when we were lining up, Dee was talking to me about his dad's originally from london and was explaining uh d's like oh we're going to this jazz bar and his dad knew the name of it straight away he's like oh is it ronnie scott's and he goes mate that's really really big he's like you guys will have a ball and we did didn't we it was there 30 years ago wow um so it was just i was never i hadn't experienced anything like it and then we just told you off air then but the music it's probably the best music we've ever seen live by by a long way like in terms of like the individual talents like yourself and then the other band members, but it was just, 
we cheekily got a few videos in, didn't we? We did. But I want to ask you, Yolanda, because as Dos just mentioned, Mm -hmm. these incredible musicians, can you tell us a little bit about the vision of the band and how it all came to be? Because you're really the creator, aren't you? I am, yes. And um, I've had a couple of bands in the past, but not... Uh, fully concentrating on it because I've been a session musician for about 30 years now Mm. and I've always done little personal projects around my session work. I started doing these jam sessions um, in about 2012 and I just wanted to meet more musicians in my hometown because I was always touring or having kids. I've got three kids. So yeah, so I was always like knuckling down being a mum or abroad. So I didn't really kind of, I wasn't in the community the way that I wanted to be. I didn't know enough local musicians. And what that meant was that every time I was between tours, I wasn't really getting any calls to do any work because my, my connections with people was just, you know, too too detached. Sure. So um, I thought, all right, I'll hold some jam sessions and get to know people. So I started doing that. And I think it was 2013, I was doing this in Soho. I had a little jam session and... I had this great guitarist. He plays with Jamiroquai, Rob Harris. Yep. And uh, he was in my little house band. My friend Rob said, oh, this guy wants to jam. Uh, so uh, it was this guy called Kim Murray. And he, I don't know if he, how long he'd been in the UK, but he's Australian. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started tearing it up on the guitar. <laughs> and I was like, what? Wow. I think I've still got that little video somewhere. Oh, yeah, this the drive. I think I might, yeah. He looked a little bit nervy, you know. Yeah. But he's absolutely, you heard him the other night, but he's absolutely great. So, so that was the first time I met him at one of my jams. I was determined to work with him again at some point. So he's always, he'd always been in the back of my mind. And so, yeah, eventually over the period of time, I just kind of made connections with musicians who I really wanted to work with. And then towards... Uh, yeah, just before the lockdowns, I started to get get a bit more serious about it. And so, yeah, I formed my band. And it was really to... I wanted to make sure it was a way for us to express ourselves as instrumentalists because a lot of us are um, session players. Yes. So as much as we love it because everybody else does all the hard work, we just got to turn up and play, right? We don't have to do the organising. We don't have to book anything. We don't have to pay for anything. We just turn up play, get paid, go home. It's a, it's a good life yeah. if you can get on that yeah. kind of thing. But the trade-off is that you don't get to be part of the creative process mm. and you don't get to contribute creatively all of your skills and yes. talents. So you can sit there practicing, you know, really hard passages at 200 BPM, yep. uh, beats per minute, you know, like really pacey kind of speed. But you'll never need that on a You'll never need it unless you're playing in, in, you know, a fusion band or some sort of classical kind of incarnation. I think a lot of musicians who work in the session world find themselves not really utilising all of their abilities and in a tasteful way, you know. Mm. So I wanted to create a a band where we could do both. We could use all of our technical skills. My personal taste is in funk Soul R&B and a bit of rock mixed in as well because I love my rock music, uh, which is blues basically. Turned up to eleven. Love it. (laughs) And so I just wanted to like find a way to make it all have a home, so that when I was off the road, I would just let go a little bit from all of the restrictions of of being you know narrowly focused on playing other people's bass lines, playing other people's music, just just enjoy myself. But what's actually happened is that lockdowns kind of ended my session career in Uh terms of travelling. So I've been focusing on my band and I've realised that that's actually what I want to do. I just want to do that because it's so rewarding, so much fun. Of course, it's your baby. Oh, yeah, Yeah. it really is. So I'm so, uh, I don't know, inspired. I feel blessed to be able to do that. And you guys saw it the other night. We are having a laugh. Oh, yes, yes. you guys it. are so fun. We, we love it. How so. did you introduce the band? You, uh, I don't know. I was oh, so no, stupid. Oh, yeah. I, I was said, so stupid. Oh, no, Stop. Was, I think you said, this is my creation, these are my babies. Or yeah, something that's what I was <laughs> <laughs> I had a good laugh. Yeah, I, I'm quite spontaneous and I'm, I'm very much me on stage. Yeah. I, I don't have a persona. I think it works to have a persona sometimes as well. So I'm not saying one's better than the other. But I definitely am just who I am yeah. off stage and on stage. <clears throat> and I find that it means that I don't get nervous because yeah, cool. I don't have to maintain anything. All I've got to do is just be me, yep. how I am with you now, is how I would be on stage, just a bit chatty and a bit silly and yeah. say shit that I go, oh yeah, oops, did I offend somebody then? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It wasn't meant badly. Please don't be offended, you know, but I just want to be spontaneous, yeah. musically and as in character. Completely well. authentic. Can you explain, so 
everyone listening, what is a session artist? So yep. you've kind of mentioned that word a few times. Okay. And then it sounds like, was there a feeling of unfulfillment, like doing that for so long and then, and then now you've finally found your true passion, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a session musician, I always say that uh, there's two kind of forms of a session musician. There was back in the day when you would be part of a kind of team of musicians and a producer would know of you as a group of musicians who play together a lot and they would book all of you Mm -hmm. to back an artist to do an album. So you would have a number of famous backing session musicians and they would be what we consider like the authentic kind of session musician job, which is that you never really work with the artist, you work with the producer Ah. and you, you play the music for the producer, you know, bringing to life their vision for the artist. I see. And that's why you'll end up with the same musicians on a number of very famous records. And the Motown backing band was one of those bands. I'm not very good at remembering anything much, so I'm sorry, I can't go through it. Yeah, Yeah. we don't get any sleep and we probably drink too much. It's probably a combination. But it's like, you know, you'll have a number of... um, like Stax, you've heard of that Stax Records? Have you heard no, of that? No, okay, no. so this, that's what, I won't bother going into it because it's just you know maybe it's too much detail, and I don't remember Jack. <laughs> but, but you know there's a bunch of like historically some really great rhythm sections that you'll have got some very famous tracks and songs that you'll know so well that have all got all of the same musicians on them. So you know James Jameson in terms of bass players is one of those musicians that will have been on a lot of different records because he'll the producer will keep bringing them in or the record label will keep bringing them in. So that's the session musician. Today's session musician isn't quite the same. We don't work with producers like we used to. We're kind of all individual businesses, uh, a sole trader kind of thing. I see, yeah. Um, that sad, sounded like I said, our sole trader. I meant, I meant, I meant. We know what you meant. We know what you meant. Sole trader. Yeah. <laughs> so we're individuals who, who, who work for ourselves and we're kind of like, some of us are very businessy about it. We have business cards and we kind of hustle a little bit for work. I was never that person. Some of us go into being part of an agency who will then give us work. Sure. Um, but most of the time it's reputation based and you just get random calls yeah. <laughs> on your phone saying, hey, do you want a five month tour for this much money? Wow. Randomly. Literally you'll get an email. Are you available on these dates? This is where we're going. This is what the pay is. If you get a yes, you get a contract, and then six months later, you're on a plane. It can be like that. It's incredible. It's a little bit weird to live that way because, you, you know, you get booked more than six months in advance because you need to prepare. Uh, tours take a long time to prepare. But your life is definitely random as hell. Yeah. And, you know, you get this uh, crazy escape from destitution phone calls and te- emails that just sort you out for 12 months. That you didn't know was coming. Yeah, wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's an an uh, unnerving way to live. Um, I don't think a lot of people would consider that a business, because it isn't really. Mm. It's more like a fortuitous circumstance of uh, reward for your reputational... Yeah. You know, whatever. It's not really that you can control. We say a lot, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Like, it's essentially that, you know, if if your network spans you know, so far and wide, you could get a call tomorrow, the next day, or the day That's after, right. like, it's all, you know, paying your dues in the long run. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there are people that try to work a path like this, and they get on the hustle with it. Yeah. And you can do it more now, that way is more available now, because there's so many ways for people to find out who you are. Putting videos up, talking about yourself a lot, you know, showing what it is you can do and what you have done. Um, but when I was growing up, there wasn't any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'd be going to jam sessions and it was a case that you just do a lot of gigs yeah. and then people will find you. And right. so I was in eight bands at one point. Yeah. Wow. And that wow. was your advertising, was your <clears throat> your performance of the gig, you know, on the day. That's amazing. Mm. So going back to the start, who firstly were your musical influences? Because Dos and I were very interested to hear this. But can you remember that first business opportunity we'll call it where you actually got paid to to play yeah and um, that's what that's what i think you end up becoming a session player when you start getting paid yeah um when you're in a band you don't get paid a lot of the time mm-hmm. you know because it's a hustle for your band it's sure. not really going to get you an income but when you when somebody calls you they're usually calling you and they're usually offering you a pay paid situation mm. so that's when you kind of are a session player because you've got no uh, creative investment in the in the project you yeah know? So that first 
occasion was probably in terms of like significance was when I was 19 wow and I'd been playing for about three and a bit years four years nearly and it come out of college the connection had come out of a music course that I did okay I'd left to a year before or something like that and the contact that I'd made while I was at college came through a couple of years later and it was for a guy called Jimmy Somerville, who mm-hmm. was in a band called The Communards. They had a couple of really, you know, quite successful hits mm-hmm. in the uh, 80s. So that was a good professional thing to yeah. walk straight into. Yeah. But it was one of those random calls out of the blue. You know, my mum's phone rang, you know. Crazy. No answer machine, just happened to be home, luckily. Lucky, you yeah. know, you'd miss the call otherwise, right? Yeah. And uh, so then somebody says, oh, hey, I remember you from a couple of years ago. You probably don't remember me, but there's an opportunity. Well, are you available? And I was working in a supermarket at the time. Wow. So I was like, am I available? <laughs> 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 Tomorrow? Sure. You know, so I quit my job in the supermarket and cool. um, ended up on top of the pops and doing all this live wow. television That's stuff right. at 19, which is quite a big deal at that time for me. I mean, it was a great way to you know, earn my chops, as it were. But that wasn't an influence. That was more like a paid opportunity with the first one. Uh, Influences-wise, I was raised in a Caribbean household. Yeah. My dad was from Grenada, and my mum's from Mansurat, and us in the, you know, the Caribbean islands chain. Mm-hmm. I was raised with ska music, okay. reggae. Yep. Um, Bob Marley was a massive influence. Mum's a big fan. Dad was into Nat King Cole, bit of jazz. And then I'm the youngest of four, so my okay. older brother's was into Lovers Rock, which is more like reggae again, but more soulful reggae. And um, my other brother's into uh, funk and American soul and R&B. Cool. So I have all of that Bit in of the mix, yeah. And my big influence, I used to love Luther Vandross when oh, I was yes. young. And I didn't realise that his bass player on those records was um, a guy called Marcus Miller. And Marcus Miller is very big in the jazz scene, but I didn't know that. I knew him as a soul guy. Right. So when I started finding out about Marcus Miller, that introduced me to Miles Davis. Yes. But his oh, wow. more fusion-y kind of stuff. And then John McLaughlin and all these artists, I won't bother list because your, your listeners may not know who they are, but a lot of the jazz scene, a lot of the jazz fusion scene, not, not traditional jazz, not 10 to 10, 10 to 10, 10 to 10, you know, yeah. but more of the kind of mix of jazz and rock together, yeah. which is quite big in the 90s. And I got into that then. And I think that was a massive influence on me because that's what I've always wanted to do ultimately. But you've got to be really chopsy on your instrument to play that stuff. So I never quite got there because there are a lot of these fusion guys are very, very, you know, technically, wow, amazing. Mm. But I've focused on the reggae element and the feel element. So I bring a lot of that to what I do with some technical ability. And that's what my band sounds like now. Yes, It's a mix of those things. So that was obviously your first one. Did you... From then on, did it just take off, or did you have to go back to the supermarket, or what? Like, did you? Was it kind of waiting for the next call once that finished, or, or, or did it slowly just become all of a sudden the phones ringing all the time? Like, you're, you're 19, 20, like. Yeah, we do. We do live a feast and famine lifestyle, like a lot of self-employed people. Funnily enough, I did manage to do the Jimmy Somerville thing. It actually happened. We did a music video and some TV promo. And then they booked us for a tour of Europe. And I was still only 19. Wow. And I had actually was still doing my day job while I was doing that, all that other stuff, right? So I'm with this really drab Sainsbury's uniform, you know, getting changed, <laughs> going to do live TV, yeah, you know. And people, you know, there was no internet, so everybody was watching television then. Yeah. So it was, you'd get seen, you know, yeah. which is kind of fun for me. All your friends um, would have been watching. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was definitely, it was a moment, but I was in, still very much in the real world because it wasn't an income to have a lifestyle by, but it was a great moment. But um, they then asked us to take on this tour, these tour dates. So I was beyond happy. I mean, mm. it was a dream come true. It wasn't my music, but by then at 19, I wasn't writing my own music then. So I did... I was just excited to be the idea of being a professional musician. Yeah, absolutely. So I did quit my job at the supermarket. It was a lovely feeling. <laughs> Can't imagine, <laughs> honestly. And um, I was preparing for this tour. Then another random call comes in and says, oh, the tour's cancelled. Oh. So to your question, yes, I did go back, but oh, not, really? to the, not to the supermarket. I went and worked in a record store oh, for cool. a while and uh, another clothing store and just, you know, went back to retail while I figured it out. Yeah. And, and not long after that, things really started to take off. 
I did some of it was very proactive. You know, I did actually do answer a couple of ads in newspapers, okay. looking for, you know, like looking for a bassist, looking for this or that. And uh, one friend recommended a particular little, gave me a little clipping out of a variety magazine, which is weird because it's for music. Yeah. But actually, it was, you know, variety is a, a acting kind of paper. So I knew it had something to do with TV in that case, you know. So I sent off what they asked for, which was a little cassette and a photo and a mm-hmm. little bio. and had nothing to talk about much except yeah. the supermarket and yeah. five <laughs> minutes of fame on telly with Jimmy. They got back to me and I did the audition and got the job and it was for the house band for a TV show for a guy called Jonathan Ross who's still doing quite well, you know from Rat Great. So that was brilliant. It was for an all-female house band, which is annoying for me because I didn't want to be thought of as a female bass player. I just wanted to be known as a bass player. I kept on getting asked to do female, all-female bands, all-female bands. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Still, even now, I get those invitations and it's like, I don't understand why you have to decide, divide us by gender. What's that about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I did accept this job offer, which is to be on television. That's cool. Live TV, 13 weeks. And I was uh, in that house band and worked with all of the artists that came on as guests, one of which was Katie Lang. Yes. Uh, She offered me a tour. What? I know. That's another story, though. I've just jumped to a different one. <laughs> yeah. So, so they had they had a, an actual kind of guest musical guest, and then they had a guest that we would back as as a yeah. backing band. And one of the musical guests who had their own band was a guy called Paul Weller, and yes. he performed with his band. So I didn't actually work with him. But then I got a call from him after the series ended and everything, saying I I did spot you on that show, and I need a bass player, and do you fancy joining the band? Wow. Well, no, he said do you fancy coming down for a jam. I thought it was quite funny he said that, but anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool that he said that. Yeah, um, because, yeah. because it wasn't an audition, but it kind of was, yeah, it was. informally. Yeah. It was Steve White, myself and Paul. And we just jammed for a couple of hours. He was happy enough to offer me a job playing the band. So that, that was really, effectively, that felt like the proper start of my session career. Because from Paul's gig, once you do gigs, like I said, the best way back in the 90s when I was young to get work was to be busy working. Yeah, yeah. Because then you get seen a lot. And with a, a high-profile artist, you get seen an awful lot. So by working with Paul, I then got seen by lots of other artists and then started getting more and more work sure. um, after that. So then that was the beginning. That was nine. 1990, 1992. <laughs> I was a, the whippersnapper at 21. We, we weren't born yet. No, we weren't. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, I was 21. Uh, 22 with Paul and uh, went amazing. on from there. Yeah, but I had my first kid at 25. Okay. 24, I think it was, I was 25. So I, I wasn't going to not do normal life. Mm. But having started so young, I had already started something. So yeah. I could, it was easy to take a sort of time out and then go back. Yeah. You know. I know we're going to jump around a little bit, but I want to ask about so in those Jonathan Ross days. How does it actually work? Do you come into the studio during the day and you give them music you have to learn? How much time do you have to prepare? How does that process work for all the different artists that come through the doors? Well, it was quite nerve-wracking. When it was, the contract was Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Okay. Thursday was sometimes not used. Mm-hmm. It would be for us to do some checks at, uh, or rehearsals. Mm-hmm. The Friday would be kind of rehearsals at the studio Mm -hmm. Saturday would be run through day and broadcast day okay so you do it twice right Uh, Friday would be some checks at the studio for the camera checks and things like that and the Thursday would be a rehearsal in a rehearsal studio with with or without the artist okay that was that was the requirement so then the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and if you want the Sunday whatever would be um, you'd receive some idea about what you'd be playing the music and stuff like that you'd be told what artist You'd be told what music uh, they would want you to learn or not. And it was all very well organised, actually. Cool. I wasn't the MD and, and being so young. And the actual MD, I wouldn't have wanted her gig. And basically, you've got the um, headset on. You've been spoken to by the director and anyone else that wants to talk to you. Right. Whilst you're... And you've got a shout mic for them. And you've got a shout mic for the band. We've all got in here so we can hear what's going on, mm-hmm. or headphones of some kind, and or she's just indicating stuff to us or speaking to us, actually thinking about that. Because I've done quite a lot of TV series, <laughs> and I think back then we didn't have the in ears thing. But anyway, yeah, it's f- very fraught because she's getting all this information about countdowns, all the cues for all of the changes because mm. it's live TV. Wow. So there's no messing about. Yeah. You can't do any redos. 
Yeah. Uh, so basically, it's a little bit difficult to not be bricking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be shitting myself. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So and I was only twenty, twenty-one. So wow. I hadn't been doing the professional thing for too long. So it was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And playing live as well, you know, because not only the element of the fact that it's being broadcast to millions of people mm. but you know we're playing live and you're just in your little space we were in a tiny little space on a platform yeah raised an elevated platform and it's very isolating but it's live and i'm sure you know what this is like now you guys everybody's broadcasting these days so you get a sense of there's probably thousands of people watching me right now, but I have no sense of them, these people. Yeah. Because it's very different when you're performing to thousands of people. You engage yeah. with them. But when, there's, uh, when it's remote through via live broadcast, the feeling is very different. But it's best to remember that because all those mistakes and all of that stuff is there for life. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was good, good training ground for me. Absolutely. It's, it sort of really tests your metal and really gives you, toughens you up. What's life on the road like? I guess, as the amount of travel you were kind of explaining before, you've been everywhere, here, <laughs> well, there and everywhere. But as a, you know, a young artist, it must have been pretty mind-blowing, like being able to just, you're travelling to different countries and you're playing in front of big audiences with different artists throughout your career. Like, would love to hear how that was. Well, I was um, raised in a council estate and parents were a bit, you know, low income. Mm -hmm. My mum, we were lucky enough to go to the Caribbean to family home on the long holiday break in the summer. But that was the extent of my traveling experience. It was home from home and my, my nan, my grandma, uh, lived in a very humble, kind of corrugated roof house by wow. the side of the road, right? No, the running water was, it was, the shower was on the outside of the house. <laughs> Whoa. The dunny was a little ways down the garden and it was a hole in the ground. With yeah. the, you know what I'm saying, a dunny, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from, you know, the council yeah. estate, which is, you know, we've all the mod cons and everything, but it was, you know, it was humble. And then I went to the Caribbean and that was humble. Yeah. So I didn't have a good sense of what travelling was. It always felt like a little bit, you know, it was a trial, man. Can yeah. you imagine? <laughs> the insects, there's yeah. no AC. <laughs> An outside shower. It was around the back of the house, so no one along the street could see us. Yeah. But I did feel a little bit exposed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, it makes me feel very lucky. God, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not going to discuss the toilet, especially at night if you've got a stomachache or something, because that is traumatising. Oh, I think yeah. I've got PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> I had one experience when I went over to. Papua New Guinea, and there were yeah, there were drop toilets, and I didn't enjoy those. No they man, yeah. they're 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 alive with yeah. the sound of the nightlife all in, <laughs> yeah. all in there with you, man. And yeah. you've got to take a torch because yeah. there's no lighting. Yeah, exactly. So you're seeing all those. <laughs> you hold on to the very last. <laughs> yeah, you, you just don't go. Don't want to drop your phone in there. Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, I hadn't actually travelled until I started touring. Yeah. So I was a girl out of the flats, getting on a plane, which I had experience because of yeah. mum and everything, which is great. At least. I had that much but I was in the in the 90s I was in my early 20s I'd never held chopsticks before I was in Japan I couldn't eat yeah. oh, <laughs> I was too embarrassed to use my fingers I couldn't we can't use, use them either I actually learned the hard way you know by actually starving myself in Japan you know? but it was different then as well because I noticed that um, you know everything evolves over time and, and the world is more you know we're all sort of cross pollinated now sure Japan felt very alien mm. when I was there. Tokyo felt very J Japanese. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't see many Western faces, you know. Yeah. And uh, not a lot of people were speaking English. And I wouldn't, I didn't want to get on the tube. Yeah. It was scary. Mm. I didn't know where the hell I was going. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a massive adventure. It was yeah. great. <laughs> Absolutely. And Europe, Europe felt more Europe then. Mm. Uh, actually a little bit drab. Okay. To be quite honest, I think there was still a lot of the communism thing was still hung over yeah. um, in certain areas. Yeah, all of this kind of shiny sort of building thing hadn't quite hit Europe the way it is uh, now. So I found travelling in Eastern Europe really depressing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love Poland, right? I love Poland. Mm -hmm. The best time I've had is in Krakow, I think, or Sopot or uh, Gdansk. Or, I love Poland. But Poland in the 1990s was not fun. Yeah. It was grey. It was concrete yeah. everywhere. 
don't talk to me about the food. <laughs> but yeah, it's very much changed. So I love the having seen over the last 30 years how the world has changed. I yeah. haven't been everywhere. I, I'm not, I haven't been to India, even though I'm part Indian, actually, I found oh, okay. out. I didn't realise to the extent that I am. But wow. yeah, it's a recent discovery. But um, Africa, I've only ever been to Egypt. I haven't okay, even been cool. South Africa, which is crazy. I've got to do that. But yeah, I haven't been everywhere at all. Yeah. But I've done a lot of the, I call it... <laughs> It's probably rude of me, right? But I call it the um, the, the British colonial kind of trail, oh, okay. <laughs> which is basically America, yeah, <laughs> South Pacific Rim, High Singapore, yeah, yeah, you were owned, yeah. and Australia, New Zealand. Yeah, that's the kind of touring kind of destinations gotcha. you end up yeah, in a lot of, of, and all of Europe. So I've done a lot of that. Touring is not for the faint-hearted. Mm. For women, we have challenges men don't have, but men design the tours. Oh, oh. what happens to women when we go on the tour? Yeah. We we muddle through, man. It's kind of sometimes graphic. I like to talk to other women about it to warn them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although things have changed now, she's great. Yeah. But when you're on a bus with like 11, 12 other, other people and they're all male, nobody's going to like bear in mind that you have periods and that you know you're on a bunk and you can't you know on tour buses you can't use the loo right like you can use it for number one yeah you can't use it for number two yeah yeah it's one of the things that i like to sort of share with my aghast friends you know because they're just like touring's so great yeah oh my god it's so fantastic you must have the best life and i'm like okay lifestyle Imagine you've got a stomachache and you're on a 13-hour drive. Yeah. What are you going to do? And the, and the driver ain't stopping. And no. the driver ain't stopping. We, oh, one of the funny stories I had, which is hilarious. I was quite young. I was on an early tour. And so when you're on an early tour or touring with people who are very young, they don't always know the rules of the road. Now you get some really great tour managers who give you a little printout of the rules of the road. But a lot often you find out kind of the hard way what the rules are by breaking them, right. not realising, yes. right? Mistakes. And one of the funny ones, going back to the toilet situation, is that <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> we, we were pulled over at the, uh, our toilet was just stinking to high heaven. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God, I think somebody's used the, the toilet and they shouldn't have. <laughs> and our bus driver was really unhappy because this smell started filtering oh, down no, to him. No. And he has to do everything. He's the housekeeper, the bus driver often, mm. you know? Poor right? So... <laughs> He pulls over into this, um, into the, the petrol station to empty the latrine because he knows that it's, you know, obviously contaminated. <laughs> and we were all out of the bus and no one would admit to doing this oh. thing. And it was really funny. It was comical. It was like, it was like a joke, a joke shop poo. Like it hadn't yeah. deteriorated. It was just oh. floating around. Oh. <laughs> and we could all see it as he was trying to get rid of this thing. It was so Dude funny. took a shit. Yeah. No one, even to this day, I don't know, but I know I've got my suspicions. If you smelled it, you dealt it? Is yeah, that if you right? smelled it, you dealt it. We you all smelled it, it. You supplied it. We, yeah. all, we were all contaminated by that experience. But it was a good thing for me to look to witness because I was like, that is never going to be me. You know, yeah. you learn that way. Yeah. And as a woman as well, you know, I've been on many tours where the guys have been just so lovely. But a lot of the time, if it's kind of low budget, you're sharing a dressing room. You've got nowhere to get changed. I can get changed from civvies to stage wear in 30 minutes. Everything. Makeup, hair, everything. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super quick. It's a bit different than my sister. (laughs) (laughs) This is stage wear. I'm I'm waving my hand around my head like as in I'm being glamorous, you know. You know, you've got to just really kind of like look the part. I can do it in 30 minutes because I often have to do it in the punter's loose. So you're in the punters loose, right? And everybody's starting to come in and you're there and your stuff's over there. So you've got to go into a cubicle, kind of get changed. Oh. That's a kind of girl issue because the guys don't care. They just strip no. off everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We do. Yeah. And yeah. it's fine because I don't mind that. I'm very hetero. Yeah. yeah. So it's all good. Yeah. Go ahead. If you want to strip off in front of me, I won't look, I promise. I won't look. <laughs> um, but I won't be doing that, thank you. So yeah. that's one of those situations where it's like, you know, you're not accommodated for mm. because there's not a lot of women around in the business to share the fact that we have different needs. You yeah, know? of course. But I think as well, I never really minded. I've got two older brothers and I'm not particularly sensitive about things like that. Yeah. And I think to a certain degree, you have to have a hardiness about you to cope with touring whether you're a woman or a man because there's a lot of challenge one of the biggest ones is lack of sleep it makes you sick 
makes you irritable, all sorts of things. And so that's one of the things I think a lot of musicians get a bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Combined with the fact that every night is party night. I was going to ask that. I was yes. like, are you partying most nights too? Yeah. Well, when you're young, yeah. When you're older, no. Mm. Or I do, some, I do know some older people who really do party every night. And they can because they've got a well-worn muscle, a party muscle. Yeah. It's like a you know superpower. They, they've got a switch. They can just yeah. flick it on and off when they need. Yeah. yeah. No, I can't now. I don't anymore. But you know, there would always be a notorious one blowout night of a tour, maybe two, where everybody was just ridiculous. Yeah. Like you know, stayed up, drank too much. Ridiculous stories came about. Oh, remember that <laughs> night with the fountain? Remember that <laughs> night with the hotel wardrobe? Do you remember that? Those kind yeah. of stories. Yeah, didn't come to mind. The, the specific well. <laughs> Dangerous, well, dangerous ones. I don't really like to share them because it sounds like I'm kind of sharing it like it was a good thing. A proud moment. <laughs> it was not. It's not a proud moment. It's dangerous, you know. It usually involves alcohol and stuff like of that. Of course. Can you remember one of the? What's the biggest tour you've been on, or the biggest concert, or the biggest crowd you've played in front of? Ooh. There's one that's coming to mind for me. I wonder if you're gonna say. Yeah. What. Well, in terms of numbers, mm. in terms of crowd and. Just the sheer length of it as well. It's probably Robbie Williams. Yeah, it is. 2003, I think that was, or two. We did uh, Nebworth. That was three nights of a hundred and something thousand a night. So we're actually housemates. Yeah. Um, We moved in together about six months ago. And when we were putting furniture together, there was only one concert that was just playing on repeat. Yeah. And it was Nebworth. We both both got it on DVD. Uh Uh-huh. It, Our mums have brought us up on it. Yeah, fantastic. Every, every, who's whose mum doesn't love Robbie Williams? But we're big sure. Robbie fans, and yeah. uh, we, we've even done stupid sketches to some of the talking he does in between <laughs> songs. But yeah, brilliant. We love it. That's huge. So three hundred thousand people essentially. Yeah, it was three sixty something like that. Yeah, it was it was uh, momentous. I mean, it was towards the end of a long period of performing the same music, mm. so we were really well rehearsed, well practiced with it all familiar with each other and so it, it, there was a bit of nerviness because you know it was being we knew it was being filmed for a video or release of some kind and a live album so there was that kind of little bit of pressure but we were very comfortable with each other by then so and we knew what to expect from Rob so yeah it was it was interesting in a lot of ways there was like a kind of um for me as, as a as a musician it's not often you get a chance to be on a stage that big in the UK maybe in the US they play massive stadiums more often but uh, for for session musicians there aren't a lot of artists that can do a stadium tour yeah that isn't an actual band you know or there's only a handful of us that get to do those that was a stadium tour so we were already doing 60,000 a night 60 odd 70 80 sometimes you know wow. which is quite a lot but then you go to Nebworth and it's suddenly like what you've been used to but just mm. ramped you know an yeah. extra 50 odd thousand on top of what you've previously wow. experienced and so weird things happen with the crowd you know you you, you see physics in motion with yeah. crowds what, what they can hear and how they respond you see time you wow. see actual physical a demonstration of when people hear things according to how far away they are in distance from yeah. where the speakers are. So that's like seeing a live physics experiment. Wow. It's absolutely fascinating. I have a little bit of a, you know, leaning towards the science stuff. I have no training or education, but I'm just fascinated with physics. I see it as magic. Yeah. It's like magic when you understand or know what actually uh, is going on besides, you know, the normal kind of everyday stuff. That it's like magic. I mean, you'd see Rob would say, everybody raise your hands, mm-hmm. and you'd see the raising of hands in a wave. Yeah. Because they hear it later at the back, right? Mm. Wow. And so you just see this lovely little wave. And it's, it's stuff like that, that it, beautiful little memories I have of playing gigs like that. Because ultimately, the best gigs are gigs where you can look into the eyes of, of the punters, you know, communicate with them directly. Those big gigs are very distanced. Yeah. And you don't communicate well intimately with a large group like that unless like Robbie he's a very special artist he's very good at communicating with any size audience and I think that's pretty impressive that he can do that yeah because I've spoken to people after he's been on stage and they feel like he's talking to them yeah 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 Yet he's been speaking to a hundred thousand people and yeah. they all feel like he's speaking to them <laughs> you know 
What was he like? Was he good to work with? Yeah, he'd just come out of a period. I think he's written about this in his book a lot, so I'm not sharing anything that's private. But he'd come out of a period of of, uh, dependency on various substances, I think alcohol maybe or something. Um, I think that was what was going on. And um, so he was changing, and I think he was becoming happier and more confident as a performer. And I saw him probably at his peak, I think. I was working with him at a peak moment in his career. So I was kind of fortunate enough to, to witness that. And it's, it's really interesting, you know, because I've worked with so many different artists and the skill level of how to be a presence on stage is a real thing. They don't just get up there and sing a song. They actually, that word command, you know, commanding mm. the stage is a real thing and not all artists have it. He really does or did, I haven't seen him recently, I assume he probably still has that gift. Yeah, I would say that I would say that he is a persona on stage as opposed to the same person on and off stage. Mm. Um, which is why he has Robbie and then Robert. Mm. So there's Rob and then there's Robbie. Robbie is who you see. Right. And and that makes sense to me because a lot of artists have personas, a character. Stage name, essentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's important for privacy sometimes to have a separate persona when you're very big. You don't always want people to know everything about who you are. Well, maybe back then, now, I think artists are more comfortable. Will Smith is a great example. I love Will Smith. (laughs) I think Will Smith had to respond to his private situation with his wife somehow because she's been very open about their personal life. And he's responded by being open as well, yeah. which I think is really quite cool for him. It's worked out well. But previously, artists were much more private. Mm. And they would have the persona version, and you would kind of buy into that. But you wouldn't necessarily know what they had for breakfast or what their actual perf- personal preferences yeah. were. Now, you're encouraged as an artist to share who you are. I like it. I really like the idea of people just being who they are. Yeah. You know? Well, like you, how you perform. Well, I mean, I wouldn't put myself in that kind of (laughs) category, but I, you know, but I don't know what I would be like if I had to be under the kind of pressure they're under. I think having witnessed the kind of pressure that Rob was under and other artists I've worked with, it's no picnic. I wouldn't trade what my my career for this. Fame, money, don't want it. Wow. No way. Can can you take us? For that, let's use that concert as an example. That like half an hour before you go out on stage, like yeah. tell, like and through the process from those first couple of tracks through to, I don't know, are you nervous? Are you stressed? Until you hit that point where you're comfortable and the adrenaline's hit and you're embracing it's the best it all. Experience yeah. of your life. Yeah. I'd love to just know how you're feeling psychologically through the lead up to the concert, to the start, through to the end, till even afterwards. Well, the nerves can begin once you know what the date is. Okay. Like, <laughs> right? So it can be, oh, you're playing Madison Square Gardens or something, right? Yeah. I haven't played them, Andrew. Or you're playing Wembley. Yeah. And the minute you get told you're playing Wembley or somewhere that's iconic, yeah. you can be like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's <laughs> so real. Yeah, and depending on how people are around you, they can really load the pressure on. Sure. And you can start feeling a little bit like, oh my God, they really want this to be great and they're putting a lot of like you know importance on that. And that can yeah. be a big deal. So I try very hard to make sure that the last thing I'm worrying about is the music okay make sure I learn all of the music intimately so I'm not concerned about the arrangements cues what where my fingers should be you know because that's one of the things that I think that makes you nervous is when you're not prepared Uh, yeah so when you're really prepared and you can relax musically the nerves can dissipate which is great but that like build up just before you go on, it starts for me, I think a lot of us are the same, when we start putting our clothes on to go on stage. Yeah. And Robbie's situation, um, there was four women, that's the most I've, women I've ever travelled with and it was bliss, because like I said, normally I'm one. Yeah. And when there's four of us, we're all supporting each other, yes. we all understand yeah. each other's problems, it's just great, yeah. we talk about girl problems. Got each other's back. Yeah, yeah, it's just so cool, so cool. So our, instead of my 30 minute, preparation i'd yeah. spend two hours instead yeah, 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 and it's so the same good. with the hans inventor as well there's a lot of women yeah. nine women on that one wow yeah because it's a big band massive band yeah so that's when we would start really getting in, in our heads into the preparation for performance mm. that would be for me I, it's hard for me now because i used to get nervous mm. i used to get really nervous like 
want to be ill, nervous. Yeah. yeah, but I never threw up ever, but I used to get really nervous. Yeah. And I don't anymore. It's gone. Cool. And I love that it's gone. Yeah. I'm more comfortable now on stage than I've ever been. And awesome. I think it's because I'm just, like I said, I'm just me. So I, I, I'm not afraid to be who I am off yeah. stage. So I'm not afraid to be who I am on stage. So I don't get nervous anymore. But I do get that anticipation. And I think it's adrenaline. I think it's like about, you know, when you're about to, do you play football? Yes. Yeah. Do you know when you're Not about soccer, to... soccer, but our version. Okay. So when you're about to take a penalty and you know everybody's we, we, waiting on you. Yeah. Did you have yeah. those? Right. I don't know about Australian rules, but something like that. And you, do you, that, you know that kind of yes. little, that feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can be quite, that can be that anticipatory, I don't want to mess, mess up yeah. feeling. And then you sort of calm yourself and you take the shot, right? Well, just before we go on stage, this is my thing. Just before I go on stage, we're standing at the wings, and that's when I'll steady everything. I'll steady my nerves, and I'll just be like, take some breaths, breathe, focus, maybe just rehearse mentally, first few bars of the opening. Sometimes I'll just be buzzed, like adrenaline, and I'll be looking at the audience, and if I see a mate, I'll be like, all right. (laughs) Because I'm not the artist. I don't know what artists do. I think it's a very different pressure. I've seen artists um, meditate beforehand. Yeah. Wow. I've seen artists drink half a bottle of scotch beforehand. <laughs> Not Robbie, I'll, I'll hasten to add. I've seen all sorts of things before to, for people to get themselves ready. I've seen the whole do not talk to me kind of mm. talk to the hand thing from artists because they just don't want to be taken out of the zone yes. just before we go on. And then when you're on stage, You've rehearsed this, you know this, you've yeah. got this, you know. That's and so it's cool. you're, you're, that's what it to me the build up's worse than being yeah, in state. Yeah. It's amazing to think about because so few would ever know that feeling mm. of you're the I don't know how many were in, in that concert were on stage, but you've got hundred plus thousand people looking back at you and you're the ten or twenty that are going back that way. Like that's a feeling that so many people never experience. I think it's so special to think about. Oh, you say that right, but I think I'd just done one of those Nebworths, maybe, because remember it was three nights, right? So mm. it's like our residency, right? No, <laughs> our residency at Nebworths. This is our house. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think I was in a hotel bar, just waiting for a drink, and this woman said to me, are you here for the rugby game? I said, oh. yeah. She said, did you have good seats? I said, oh, I had the best seat, darling, <laughs> the best seat. She said, oh, I had, but you couldn't have better seats. I had the great it was wonderful it was a great concert and I said I'm so glad you enjoyed it she said oh great she said you're going to see it again tomorrow I said yeah I am actually she said oh you're dedicated aren't you and I said oh yes I'm very dedicated and I didn't tell her that I was the bass player because she didn't notice me she only had eyes for Robbie and that's actually great I like the anonymity of just being a side person sometimes and I can just play my bass do a great job, vibe with the other... I'm vibing with the musicians. I'm not really vibing with the audience as much. Yeah, sure. Because um, central focus is the artist. That's who they've paid to see. I'm there to support the artists. That's why we're called in America side men. Yeah. Uh, okay. Side women. <clears throat> Hello. And um, <laughs> so we're there to, to support them and, and, you know, help them put their best performance forward. So I don't mind if people don't necessarily acknowledge me being there. That doesn't hit my ego. I actually just want to vibe with the musicians and make sure we have a good gig between us. It's awesome. It's awesome. Mm. I'd love to go back a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, I guess this probably is more, more of a question tailored towards like our mission as a, as a duo and as a podcast, and that is to help 20-somethings unlock their sacred ambition. So you, you, know, you, from a young age, knew this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. What if people don't know what they want to do? Like you've gone at it. I'm sure you've probably had people... Also, like the lifestyle you've explained, it's very imbalanced. Like it's not the typical, your work, your nine to five and you're going to get paid every week. Like you said, you have your, your ups and downs. But what about people that don't know exactly what they want to do? Like what, would you have any advice there? Well, yeah, I think people do know. Mm. They just haven't recognised it. It's a difference. Because I recognised that I, I wanted to do something to do with music because I was moved by a thing. And everybody is moved by something. They just don't identify what it is. And if they do identify the fact that they have been moved by something, they don't understand what it is about it that's moved them. So in my case, I, my, I would be sitting in... I can see it now, my arm, my mum's armchair in her front room. And my, both my parents are so into their music. And uh, my dad had a lovely record stereo, a lovely system, you know, back in those days that the quality, you know, it's all analogue and records and LPs, yeah. you know, so it's beautiful. I used to put the records on. And I'd put a record on 
And every now and again, a, a particular track on anybody's album, it could be any number of albums, but one track per album usually would have me in tears with wow. emotional connection. It literally would be like, oh my God, I love this. And I identified my, my love. And I identified a thing that moved me in some form. People might call it a chemical reaction or mm. a spiritual effect or something. But I recognised as a young child and I would seek to repeat that experience often and put those same specific tracks on, usually bass-led, I must admit. <laughs> but I knew it was music. So when I, I didn't have a huge amount of uh, uh, stimulation because... We didn't have lots of resources uh, around. So music was massive in my house as a thing to do with my pastime, as a pastime, in terms of listening. And when I went to school, we were all told to learn an instrument, or had to, at seven. And because I was so immersed in listening to music, I guess that fed into a natural ability to hear music and translate it into an instrument. I wasn't a a prodigy, but I could play fairly well, quite young. I had a resonance, like another, that feeling would uh, arise in me that was similar to when I listened to music when I played it. So I just kept on seeking out a repetition, a repeat of the thing that made me feel a certain way. I I aligned myself or I listened to my intuition about the thing that moved me, that actually felt good. And it was basic. It sounds a bit woo-woo, but it was actually really basic. Everybody has a thing or a thing, number of things that moves them in some way emotionally or, or leaves a lasting impression on them in some way. If anybody identifies that thing and keeps seeking it out or seeking out the feeling, even if it's in a different genre, a different motivation, but the feeling is similar, follow that feeling because the feeling leads you to something that means something to you and it's not always the same for everybody yeah so mine was music but other people's is art it's communication it's traveling it's seeing vistas it's working with animals it's working with people who need uh, help in terms of they might be inspired to become a doctor because of that when you feel that resonance you feel a thing you have to sort of be open to it and don't dismiss it as don't just push it away if something actually touches you look at it see where it takes and keep following it because because it's so varied where we all find ourselves in terms of a, a vocation if we find ourselves aligned with a vocation it's so varied it means that these things are unique to us as individuals yes and that has to be found only by you no guru, coach, anyone can tell you what to do. They can only advise you maybe how to seek it out. And there are a number of people that are doing that, which is great. Mm. But I always think that it's quite, it's quite simple. You have to recognise your own emotional response to things and then pers- pursue it. I love that. Amazing. It's really beautiful because... Amazing. Especially with music, because that's one of the industries that we don't get encouraged to pursue because right. it's got that reputation. It's so hard. It's like yeah. so few make it, but mm. I just loved hearing that. I think no matter what your passion is or your secret ambition, that's there's such great advice just to, to follow it. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I just want to quickly share, listening to that, I just think of my cousin, her name's Brooke uh-huh. and she's a drummer, uh-huh. but for so long, also being being a female artist for so long not that she was starved opportunity but she's worked so hard and she's now uh, and i'm going to share this on here because i'm so proud of her but do you know the musical hamilton yeah yeah well she's she's just signed a deal to be the lead drummer in hamilton in melbourne hey that's that's a great soundtrack she's gonna have uh, she's got to be a good player because it's a great <laughs> yeah. soundtrack and like i want she told us that a while ago she, oh, got an audition and she was like not like really telling anyone I don't think I'll get it but she got it wow and I was really looking forward to meeting you today and actually sharing her name with you because like she knows who you are so like great I'm gonna look her up sure (laughs) I'm gonna follow her this is great I I would like to ask one more thing and that's about the MBE oh yeah yeah Yeah, (laughs) like what an experience that is it must be pretty special and proud because that was only last year or 2020 so you know pretty special well, yeah, it was random. Again, it's like one of those things where you get a random message and it was yeah. a random email. 
And I was so sure that it was uh, some sort of phishing spam thing that was going to get me to give them my credit card details. I was like, so Nigerian prince. Yeah. yeah. You didn't just delete it. Yeah. Well, I was a bit like, well, is this how they do this? This doesn't sound right. Well, what? An email? Yeah, you'd expect a telegram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Delivered by, yeah. uh, yes. Yeah, so, Carry pigeon. Pigeon. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so I actually know, I kind of skimmed it a bit. I was a bit naughty. I did look at it, thought it was BS. <laughs> and I have a couple of friends that have MBEs, so I wrote, I phoned one and I said, I'm not supposed to talk about this if it's true, mm. because you're not supposed to in advance, you see, at all, not even to family. They say oh, you really? not to tell anyone, it's top secret or something. I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I didn't think it was real anyway, that's why. But I phoned my friend and said, when you got your MBE, the initial contact, how did that turn out? We said, oh, beautifully embossed letter from the post. It came from the, uh, whatever it was, the civil service. <laughs> Gold-plated letter, you know, envelope. Right. And I said, well, I got an email. He said, he said, that sounds a bit dodgy. I said, yeah. He said, well, what do they want? I said, well, I don't know. I kind of haven't read it through properly. He said, well, look, look through it. And he kind of helped me identify whether it was legit. I did that process. And thought, well, okay, I'll reply now. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was legit. And I had to keep it quiet. Of course, I told my kids. Because yeah. <laughs> I had to. I was yeah, so excited. Course, yeah. They heard me swearing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't effing believe it. What? Who effing well this, effing that? And they were like, Mum, Mum, is everything all right? And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, and I was yeah. excited. So they found out that way because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I love that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had to sit on the, the news in a broad sense until... October and I was told about it in like April or something. Oh, that's, a, that's painful. Yeah, it was long because it kept on getting pushed back because oh, of the COVID yeah. situation. So I couldn't, it wasn't announced. The honours list wasn't announced by I think six months or so. So I couldn't talk about it, but I, would, I knew for that long. And it gave me a lot of time to think about whether I was going to accept or not and everything. And there's a certain amount of pressure in, amongst artists and musicians and us kind of like rebels that we don't mm. do the establishment stuff. Oh, like. I was going to ask, why mm. would you... Yeah, okay. And I, I was aware of how people feel about, you know, colonialism sure. and the whole empire thing. Yeah. I like taking the mick out of it. Yeah. Because it's funny <laughs> how this tiny little island managed to dominate the world for yeah. a period, you know. Um, but it's not the case now. Yeah. And uh, frankly, as much as it might be kind of a horror story in a lot of ways, I actually wouldn't exist... If it wasn't for the path that I came from, yeah. or I belong on one, yeah, which is a Caribbean colonialist past. And the country that my mum's from, Montserrat, is still, it's a British overseas territory. It's a bot. Mm. So, you know, we're still very much part of that. I don't reject my past and I don't reject Britain's past. I think it's sordid and, you know, it's got a legacy that's kind of difficult for us to accept now because time's changed. Sure. But I can't. Well, I don't think we have to accept that our history is peppered with terrible stuff. Yes. We're not endorsing that as a positive when, when we engage with the beneficiaries of that system. We're not saying we like it. We're not saying it's great and mm. we're going to ignore it and whitewash history. I'm saying that I accept that it exists and I'm moving forward and yeah. beyond that. Because, you know, people blame white people of today for mm. stuff their grandfather and great-grandfathers did i that's crazy mm. <laughs> i always want to be taken at face value as a human being yeah i don't want people to look at my race and my gender and think they know anything about me based on that of course i want them to get to know me as a human being because we're all unique and if somebody is going to label me as black and female and think that means think that they know what that means that means they haven't taken the time to get to know me mm. and that means in exchange i'm not going to do that to anyone else yeah. you know just because they've come from a country that's got a sordid dark bloodied history i'm not going to write them off as an individual until they open their mouth and talk bullshit yeah then yeah. i'm going to write you off but not exactly. until i know who you are you know so i like that yeah i just i think we need to just stop with all of this kind of cancellation situation mm. and understand people's motivations for things, accept apologies for things, and when people are trying to do better and ask questions more of each yeah. other and be more forgiving in terms of our human inability to be perfect mm. all the time. So I accepted this MBE mostly because my dad would have got out of his grave and beat my ass if I tried to turn it down. Yeah. Yeah. He worked hard to get us here. 
and look after us and that one of his children has uh, done something of note that would be rewarded for that if he knew because he, he died before it was already died in 16 right. um he would be so proud mm. but even you know the fact that he's not aware doesn't matter i just feel like i'm take i took it on from it for him my mum's got alzheimer's she hasn't got a clue what's going on she also came as i told you from those humble beginnings in that little corrugated iron shack really no offense grandma but you know damn, <laughs> with the outside dunny in the shower you know and they uprooted themselves and came to the UK in the 50s and did well in respect of living a life, a good, decent life. It didn't hurt anyone, didn't harm anyone, didn't end up in prison or in great debt. Mm. And they raised four healthy children who've done what we did with our lives. And mine has become of note to somebody. My mum would be just, honestly... So I I had to accept it for them. Of course, yeah. yeah. Wow. I still don't know what the hell the bloody gave it to me for, but still. Because <laughs> you're an incredible that's, human being. That's up to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, was, I won't question their motivations. No. I'll just say thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. It's, a, it's what you just said there is incredibly powerful too. I think it's just great words for people to to think about. I really relate to what you're saying. I think you're right with history. There's a lot of there's a lot of darkness in the past, but. Mm-hmm how can we possibly get better unless we learn from those mistakes? I think that's why it's a good reason not to cancel everything necessarily. It's okay, accepting it happened and how can we move on for a better future? But as we kind of come to the end of this incredible podcast, I want to ask you what's next for you. And I want you to give your band a bit more of a shout out, talk about this new single that's coming out soon. That's very exciting. So uh, yeah, what's next for you? Well, I'm a fully independent musician right now. That may change. I've had a few record companies asking me Ooh. what I'm doing, which is exciting. But I don't know even if I would want to go that route. So sure. as an independent artist, what's next for me is pure and utter slog. Yeah. I'm social media updating constantly. I'm even doing all my own graphic design. I've really? built my own website. I'm learning all these different these skills just to stay fully independent. And also it's cheaper to do it yourself. Yeah. It's costly in time, so I don't get a lot of sleep. But I'm focusing on that. Going to be crowdfunding to raise capital to finish the recordings. We've done half of the recordings done. Just got to finish up editing and and a few vocals. So as soon as that's done, I'll be uh, releasing new music. Original music, funk-based, with a bit of a tinge of jazz in there and R&B. And it's it's got its own sound. It's kind of different. So I'm hoping that's going to add a nice little element to the scene in London, which is very vibrant right now. Yeah. More gigs at Ronnie Scott's. We're, we're actually, I've got two kind of lineups. One is the band you saw is the vocal lineup. That's Project PH. Yep. But then we've got Project PH instrumentals. Oh, okay. I'm calling it instrumentals because we do go a bit mental <laughs> uh, when we don't have the singers keeping us in check. Uh, hey, well, those singers had some moves too. They could dance. Oh, yeah. man. You should see on a bigger stage. Paris, our vocalist, yeah. he goes out he and he starts. He was really good. He, he, will chat up your wife if you sit in the front yeah, well. he's naughty he's, he's also very good he's a great performer accompany really. your wife to the, to the shows <laughs> <laughs> don't so go alone he sings directly to your partner and, and he's listening to uh, he's watch, I'm watching the the, uh, the husbands and spouses kind of looking over going don't sing too good you know yeah, 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 yeah. don't impress her too much you know yeah. so it's great I've got a really nice mix of people but because I at Ronnie Scott's they want to study instrumentals as yeah. well as a contrast so that's when we become instrumental and that's the next bunch of gigs so it's all about raising capital raising profile project ph is the band name we have a twitter we have an insta we have you know what else we have got at the moment probably a soundcloud band camp it's and uh, you know it's all kind of kicking off but it's early stages for the band so we're low radar right now I would appreciate a shout out whenever you can. Absolutely. And as soon as we have a single ready, which I hope will be by spring, I'll, I'll fling it over to you guys to, awesome. to yeah. have a listen. Yeah. yeah of course. Oh, well, from what we heard the other night, everybody needs to hear this. Everybody has to experience it, don't they? Yeah. I don't think uh, what we experienced, I don't think what we'll be sharing will do it any justice because it was just it was awesome. incredible. Yeah. It was one of those you had to be there kind of moments but that's a that's a good plug to, to go and see you guys it's you guys were we you said, come to Australia when you can oh I would be over there like a shot I love being in Australia my favourite city is actually Melbourne yeah well yeah. I'm, I'm not sucking up I swear it's actually true because it's just, just a bit you know it's just kind of cuter and a little bit more bohemian and it's got very arty vibes going inside yeah it is very arty musical city oh yeah. I love it but I had a great time in Sydney jam sessions sat in on that with when I was there with Hans Zimmer 
Perth is kind of fun because it just you feel like you're on holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Never, never, we've never been to no. Perth. So, oh, it's just yeah. lovely and sunny. You've probably seen more of Australia than we have. So <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> have Brisbane. Yeah, I've been around. I haven't been in the centre. I'd love to go to the centre one day. Yeah, same. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, um, I would love to play there. I know that there's a healthy at- uh, appetite for funk, jazz, soul, R and B there. So it'll be on our list when we get to travel again. For, for sure. sure. Awesome. Well, Yolanda, I just want to say thank you and acknowledge you. It's just absolutely amazing. For one, we, we weren't expecting a reply. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when you replied to us, I was at work and then I got a call from D and we were both like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> it's, rare, it's rare we'll ring each other when one of us is at work. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I have to ring. Yeah. It was, we were going off, but um, you're an absolutely incredible human being. And oh, I cannot you. wait to share this with our listeners because it's just going to be, well, for one, I think it could possibly be a tearjerker there because yeah. towards the end it got very... I did. I felt a bit emotional myself. Yeah, actually, it's like, good. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> but um, it's just incredibly empowering and inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Lovely talking with you both. Thanks, Thanks Yolanda. Dee, wasn't that episode just awesome? Oh, mate, I got so much out of it. I'm sure you did too. And of course, thank you to everyone who listened. Guys, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For sure. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple. It goes such a long way to helping the show. And of course, you have your chance to get a shout-out. Don't forget to go and follow us over on Instagram as well. What's the Instagram, Dee? It's at D underscore. D-O-S-A-N-D-D underscore. See you next week. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you in the next episode.